0: This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Fantanar. Jay, thank you for agreeing to be on the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. It's uh, good to uh, finally have a catch up and uh, get the data arranged. And uh, obviously, with lockdown, it uh, makes it a bit easier to schedule something good because uh, because people aren't running around all over the place. Yeah. But uh, just to give people a bit of an introduction, uh, I saw uh, something. It uh, we we connected on LinkedIn because you did a post on. Uh, it was just about passing a, a, a recent exam in cybersecurity. Yeah. Uh, and then you mentioned about uh, some learning challenges, and we just started the conversation uh, from there. Yeah. And uh, obviously, we've had a bit of an introduction call. So if you can give people a bit of a background on yourself, and then we'll talk about your experiences
1: uh, with some of the challenges that you've had. Okay. So my name is JJ, and i done five years in the Army. Basically, communication systems operator, basically radios and all that kind of stuff. Not really too much IT. I left um, around 2016, 17. Then moved into Lockheed Martin help desk, which I I didn't really enjoy because I really wanted to be in security. And then I became a SOC analyst in 2018. I moved to Carnival in 2019, which um, I really enjoy uh, because I really love security. I've had a lot of challenges along the way, especially with learning. Um, I learn very different to other people. Um, So I recently just passed my um, cybersecurity analyst plus exam. But I think I've approached that very different to what a lot of people approached it. And I I think the way that I've approached it works for me and may work for other people that have my kind of difficulties with learning.
0: Okay. You just share with us the obviously learning difficulties that you had. I know you mentioned dyslexia, but you also have dyscalculia. Yeah. So can you explain how each one just to give people a bit of context and then just you know how the two seem seem to affect you together and how you actually deal with them
1: yeah so just dyslexia is basically the ability to well, the disability to comprehend words so when i'm reading let's just say i'm reading on a white background when i read that sentence i can read the words i know what the words say but i don't know what the sentence means it has no meaning to me it's all jumbled up in my head essentially. And it's the same with uh, calculus, with numbers. When I look at sums, uh, numbers and that kind of stuff, I find it very difficult to process them into an answer. I'm unable to formulate them. So that comes with a lot of challenges, especially when we're doing learning, learning about stuff like subnetting, supernetting. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at big academic kind of uh, qualifications like CISP, for me, that's very difficult because I'm not a good reader at all. Have my methods to read, but for me that's a bit more challenge. So I, I go for more videos because so I'm a bit more of a visual learner. Um and I also do a lot of hands-on stuff as well. I find that helps cement it a lot more because reading for me for a long period of time doesn't it's not really feasible with dyslexia. If if anyone has it, they know that you get these kind of sharp headaches after a while. hmm so I know from speaking with other uh, friends who have
0: dyslexia, it they tend to be a lot more you could say organizational in their in their mindset instead of uh, instead of having the you could say the the ability to focus on the details, they tend to focus on the conceptual parts of it bit more and they uh, they seem to be able to use uh, a lot of high level concepts and and organizationally
1: try and manage with information. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think I, I've actually experienced that quite quite a lot. I think, but especially with networking, when you're learning the concepts of networking, I think when you start to learn about how you know packets move from A to B, you pull it into a, a, kind of a scenario in your head. Like, well, that could be that's a the TCP is a delivery truck, and the packet mm-hmm. is the box in the truck. And when you start thinking about it like that, I'm like, there we go, it's it's, it's coming along. It's I'm starting to learn it really quickly. If somebody sat up there and just said, Oh yeah, this is how TCP works, this moves over there, this moves over there, I'm like but but how? Yeah. And so so you start to you start to try and build like little concepts and you hear like it's um I, I think uh, you meant might men, mention one about a hotel. Yeah, my concept of TCP because or, or trying to explain uh, IP addressing
0: to to people is that I said IP addresses or or basically IP network is kind of like a hotel. So you go to the reception, you ask for a number or for 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 a room. They give you a number for room. The room is say seven four one. You know it's on floor seven. It's room number forty one on that floor. And then when you go up onto that floor, you've got you've got the the lift, which can act as almost like the um, I'm trying to think It's almost like the the core kind of switch. Back, there. Yeah, yeah, the switch so so that the lift acts almost like a like a routing uh, channel so you 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 go up the lift channel to or the lift to, to the floor and that's almost like when you, uh, when you get out of the switch and then the room is almost like a switch port so it's a, a similar concept to for for me yeah. to explain a network but the 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 room numbering is a way of actually explaining You know, subnetting because of you know the floor, the room number. Now, if you get bigger hotels, then obviously you've got A and B and whatever. You know, just a way of actually structuring or breaking down into uh, kind of areas of of a hotel, and that's that's the way I saw it. The other way that I think that you can almost think of is is a telephone number. Uh, If you think about an area code, so if you've got country code, which is uh, say. 40, what's it, 43, 44 for the UK. And then you've got 020. Many years ago, when they still had 0203 and O two O four, they were separated out. Now it's all oh, 020. It used to be separate for London for the different areas, 0203 and O two O four. Then they combined them. And then obviously you've got the rest of the number, which which gives you some additional structure. I think you can break it down even further with that. I, uh, I haven't looked into that in detail yet, but that's just a way of actually conceptualizing yeah. it, how the numbers are structured, to to break it up into into manageable uh, pieces. And I think it's also used as a way of routing, uh, you know, the the calls depending on where it goes. And it's, you know, routing works on a similar process. It's just a way that you conceptualizing and structuring information.
1: Uh, for, that, for that worked for me. Yeah. That's worked for me so well. Just being able to visualize it in some sort of scenario, some real world scenario, and then relate that to the subject that you're learning. I think that just for me cements it really well. And also what I found helped with networking, especially with dyslexia, is Cisco's packet tracer. That was amazing. Where you can start putting the routers on the uh on the screen. It's yeah. all it's all like a it's all like a little flow chart diagram. Uh, you, you click on the router, you've got the console, um, yeah. and then you can download scenarios. So it'd be like, oh, this uh, this switch ha- is broken. Well, this network's broken. Where is it? And it's like, oh, it's actually the switch misconfigured. But you'd have to go through all the console, and and, and I think that that kind of little hands-on kind of exercise is really good as well for people. Yeah, I think that's a big jump.
0: In learning, which has made a huge difference, because when I started in kind of IT and whatever, because it was so that you didn't have the power and the devices to be able to run virtualized systems like that, and there wasn't there, w- there wasn't much technology to be able to do that. Yeah, it was quite difficult. So you had to physically get old kit or make old kit or do stuff, and you had to build it out, which was obviously a lot more expensive and a lot more time-consuming. So with the virtualized stuff, it makes it incredibly easy because you can, anybody nowadays can spin up a virtual environment and actually test just within their own system without even breaking outside of your own network. And it makes it really quick and easy to actually learn a lot of things and actually test and conceptualize. And there's, there's so many services out now that give you the capability of testing within a virtual environment without the same cost that it was before. So nowadays, uh, I think I saw a cybersecurity one for lab testing or just refreshing your test skills where you can do it for free but, but limited scenarios, but then for $10 a month, you can get old archive systems and actually do testing on them and run through scenarios and all kinds of other stuff. Well, yeah. It's phenomenal what technology
1: is able to do nowadays just without It's amazing. Yeah, having... I think that leap in technology now caters for people with learning difficulties a lot more. Whereas before, a lot of it was mainly textbooks, and as you said, trying to get hold of a kit, and which can be quite expensive, and for some people, it's not feasible. Yeah. But now we have this ability where we can virtualize a lot of our learning. We can do a lot of hands-on learning and in virtual environments. So I think the, the leap in technology has really catered for people with like dyslexia, dyscalculia, or just people that are struggling in general, and just want to get an idea of how something works. They can just go, click of the fingers, it's there. So with the two, I could say, learning challenges that you've got how have you developed
0: your own kind of ways of actually learning and actually working around some of the restrictions
1: that you've had so i knew for a fact that i needed to learn to read i needed to pick up a book and read one of the challenges for me was when i read off white paper i can't make sense of the words so initially i brought some yellow tinted glasses i don't know if you see um, a white yellow tint there so these are these were blue blue light blocking glasses that's what they're normally used for but the off shade where it gives me that that shade of yellow on the text gives me that ability to comprehend that text and understand that sentence a lot better. Um, so then I started to read books more. Um, I was going through my security plus books. I was going through my cast book and I was reading it and I was actually enjoying it because I was understanding what the book was saying. Mm. Uh, it got to the point where I was like, Oh, I'm lugging around these massive books in my bag and they're starting to hurt me. So i got a Kindle now. A Kindle normally has black text and a white background. Yeah. For me, I'm not compatible with. Uh, but I've, I've managed to find a way where, so this is my CIS book, yeah, where okay. I can invert the text. And for me, I can read that fine. And I've dimmed the light right down. So for me, that's perfect. So I can sit there and I can read that. Happy days. When it comes to learning about sums and stuff, I didn't really have a technique for that apart from brute force. So for me, it was just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. I would sit there with a notebook and pen and I would give myself a subnet and challenge. I would say like, break this into a slash 23. And then i would have to work out everything, pen and paper, and I'll go check it on a subnet calculator. i would be like, oh, wrong. Where was I wrong? Go watch another video. Go back to the book. So for the number side, of things, it was still quite brute force, but... It's, again, it's a it's a difficulty, it's a challenge, it's not a showstopper, you can still learn it. Mm-hmm,
0: oh, that's good. And do you find it takes you longer to actually go through a learning and process? And do you, because it makes it a lot more challenging to to learn, do you actually find that the
1: knowledge seems to stick a lot better? Yeah, so it's quite funny, because when I actually have a conversation with someone in regards to security, things start cropping up, which I've briefly read, and it's just there. And I can speak to it like I really have comprehended that piece of knowledge and i can speak i can speak about security and i'll start dragging stuff up which i read about four or five years ago in a book but it's it's cemented there and it's there available for me a lot easier but in terms of the the length of learning that's um a different story so when i was studying for my recent exam I actually bought a course, which was a 10-hour course. I bought it for like 10 quid or something like that, something cheap. It's a 10-hour course, really good course, um, but I actually watched it five times. I watched 50 hours of this course. I watched it once, and then I watched it the second time. But the second time, I picked up the book, the the complimenting book, Mm -hmm. and I'd I'd watch about three or four videos, and then I'd read about those videos. I'd watch another three or four, read about those. So it took me quite a while, and then I went through it another three times to make sure that I really understood what was being asked. But I think that mentality, because I actually, I've done that in about two week period. So I was there late nights, but I think a lot of that has come back from my army days. I've had that mentality where I can, you know, just streamline focus now because I've got that regimental mindset about me. And I can really dig into it. But I think if I didn't have that army phase about me, I think I'd probably still really struggle and it would be a lot more lengthy process. When you're talking about the the army phase, is it just a whole approach of just focus on what's in front of you and just carry on with it? Yeah. So when you get a challenge that's put in front of you, and you've just got to like find a way to overcome it, and if there is no other way but to go through it, then you need to find a way to go through it. It's like if I want to learn this thing, I need to pick up physically pick up the book. I need to learn it. I can't. I can't make excuses and say, oh, do you know what. <laughs> I might do it at this day, I might do it this day. He so, said, no, I actually need to pick up the book, I need to put the hours in, I need to get it done. But it's having that mindset. If you have that healthy mindset that you can overcome that really easily and, and your learning difficulty is not a showstopper, then you can get it done.
0: I think you've highlighted a really interesting and valuable point. There's a piece of research which uh, a psychologist did. Uh, she's called Carol Dweck. Uh, I'm not sure if you read the book. Her book is called Mindset. Uh, she did extensive amounts of work to actually look at what the difference is between children going through a school period and to see which ones learn better over a period of time and try to figure out what was the difference between the ones that were successful and what was the difference between the ones which were less successful. And she boiled it down to two different ways, two different mindsets. One is a, is a growth mindset and the other one is a fixed mindset. That's how she's conceptualized it. So fixed mindset uh, tends to rely on something which is people that have got an innate ability and classify themselves as being that kind of person or, you know, that's just the way that they are. They tend to be very strict in their approach. They're very inflexible in their thinking methodologies. And they're either really good at something because they've got kind of an innate ability and they rely on that innate ability. But once it gets past a certain point, they tend to start struggling and then they start getting demotivated. But she found that when she looked at the other kids who had more or less of a growth mindset, the growth mindset approach was that, it doesn't matter what the situation is or what the problems are if i work at it i can incrementally improve and become better over a period of time which means i can i can develop it as a skill so it's a skill based approach and actually the learning which is which is what you just mentioned is that you've got this whole aspect of it doesn't matter what the challenges are and how i need to deal with it i'll just work at it until i get to a point where i learn with it and i become skilled at it
1: yeah I think I think I was the other kid before. I used to use my learning difficulties as an excuse. A lot of times I used to say, oh, I'm actually bottom of the class because I have these difficulties. I can't learn this. I can't pass the exam because I have these difficulties. But when you stop using that as your last bastion of hope and you actually realize, you know, you can do it, it's something that is feasible and it can be done, you just got to find out, well, what's my first step? And once you realize your first step, even if that's like picking up a pair of yellow glasses because I can't read off white. That's a that's a good positive deviation towards your goal.
0: What was the change for you that you actually flipped? Because invariably, it's got to be something that kind of pushed you into making a change. What was, for you, the driving factor
1: to make that change? I think the real kicker was not being seen as good enough. And I think I, I always took failure to heart. But now I take failure as a learning point. So if, if somebody says to me, oh, you know, you're not quite capable of doing this, I would, that, I would go back that night and learn what I needed to to become capable, quote unquote, in a situation where I wasn't capable before. Mm. So each day I'll, I'll be progressing in very small amounts. But I think you need to really dial that mindset in. It's not something that you can just flick on. It's not a light switch. It's something that you need to nurture. So I always used to take very small steps to success. So the small steps would be, you know, something easy, make your bed in the morning. It's mm. something simple, but you've done a task for the day. Yeah. And then, then my next step would be actually physically pick up the book, physically read it, read it for ten minutes tomorrow, read it for twenty, next day read it for thirty. Just little steps, because I realised that if I tried to take on too much too quickly, then I would have got overwhelmed. But if I tried to learn CISP and just say, do you know what? I want to be the best in security. I don't care about security blast. don't care about this one. Just going for CISP. I think I would have been overwhelmed. Mm. So I think there's a very logical path in security that we can say that we can take these very small, sensible steps. Um, And then you need to build, well, how am I going to get to those steps? You need to build that mindset like, okay, there's my step. There's my route. I'm going to take it. You've come up with some really valuable and, and practical applications is instead of trying
0: to focus on, you'd say, the whole concept or the whole idea, because as you've just said, it it becomes overwhelming and then procrastination sets and it's just focused on, okay, that's the next step. It's something that David Allen wrote about in his book, uh, Getting Things Done. I'm not sure if you've read the book or anything, but basically his whole approach is to break everything down into the next action or the next task. And it, it's everything is, is clearly structured in a way that instead of trying to figure about what's a high level thing that you're trying to do, is just focus on, OK, the next thing I need to do to to get this done. It's almost like the uh, analogy of journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Yeah. And whether it's learning, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's a new skill in sports or whether it's anything that you're trying to do, sometimes being as simple as picking something up and just starting.
1: And I think that's very true, and it rings really true of me as well. And one of the most interesting things and I always say this to people is when you open up a Security Plus book, when you open a Sysbook, what do you see when you first open it? You see domains. You see it's laid out in a structure, domain one, domain two, domain three. Use that as your, your guide. Mm. So week one, I'm going to master domain one week two, domain two, then you've got yourself a nice eight, 12 week program of what you're gonna do. Obviously that's not gonna be a you know dedicated learning program, but it's just an example yeah. of how you can break down a large task into very small manageable pieces. And you can manage them however you want. If you want to do domain one, you know, you want to do a domain domain each week, get some videos, you know, throw some videos in there, you know, get your learning, get your reading going. And it's just breaking breaking down a very large task into very small manageable pieces, it makes all the difference. Because as you said before, if you get a massive overwhelming task, you are going to procrastinate because you don't want to do it. Mentally, you don't want to do it. Uh, you, know, yeah. you need to do it, but you don't want to because you just overwhelmed yourself.
0: Before you actually made that change where you actually just started taking the steps and you were in that, you could say fixed mindset. Did you find that you felt like you had
1: a lack of control and choice in what your options were available to you? Yeah. I I didn't do really well at school at all. I didn't do well in college at all. And for me, my only choice, well, my only foreseeable choice at that point in time was to join the Army and regain the skills I I, uh, missed out on in school. But I think it's my fault, really, to why those options weren't available to me. Um but i think i'm now in this mindset now where if an option is not available i would do something to make it available so say i'm a security analyst um i'm a sock analyst but i want to become a pen tester well it's like that option for me is not currently available yeah. but how do i make it available okay i'll go and hack the box for a few hours i know a few hours a day i'll take a, an oscp exam It's just about knowing how to make those options available for you, how to open certain doors, the proverbial doors of life, and how to open them. And it's having that ability now to understand that the opportunities don't just come to you, you make them happen. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that you're given on a plate. I mean, yeah, some people do get it quite lucky sometimes, but that's not always the case. Sometimes you do need to you you know, put your hand in your pockets and get to work.
0: Yeah and end of the day the luck only happens if you work at it because sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time yeah but you know unless you put yourself in that position where you're allowing that opportunity
1: to happen you know it's never going to happen nobody's going to walk up to you and say do you want to do this certainly not no and i think one of the bigger changes as well that really helps if you if you haven't got that mindset now and you want that mindset. I think the best way to do it is um, is just to look at yourself, get a book, write down things that you don't like about yourself. And then on the other side of that page, write down how you can improve those points. And so once you get that, so so one of them might be your physical image. Well, start an exercise routine. And then you start getting a routine and then you start feeling better about yourself. And then you start, it's like a snowball effect. Once you start one good thing, another good thing happens, another good Mm -hmm. thing happens. And you just get this like snowball effect. Because I I was quite overweight when, when I was a kid. So I started, you know, doing running around the block and really embarrassed. All the kids were laughing at me, you know, making jokes at me at school. I'm running. Oh, Fatty's running. But when I started to see positive changes, that changed a lot of my outlook. It started to show me like, hey, I've lost a little bit of weight here. Maybe I actually do have a little bit of control. Maybe I, I am actually the, the driver of my life, and I'm not just being dictated by my excuses and everyone else. I can actually change the way of my future. I can mm. lose the weight. I can do this exam. I can pass this test. I can get this certification. But it's it's just being able to look about. Well, how are you going to do that? What's the first step on and changing the things that you hate to thing to change into something that you love? It's being able to have that mindset. And it's it, again, it's a lot of it's about routine. Once you build that routine, it all falls on top of each other. Whether it's a exercise routine, a diet routine, such so as intermittent fasting, brilliant tool. But once you've started to do that fasting, you need to re- realize well how you're going to fit all the rest of the stuff around your life. Like when you're fasting, uh, the the first you know initial period of fasting, you've got this immense brain power. Now your brain's supercharged; it's on ketones, it's it's wired, it's ready to go. Well, use that time to learn, because that that I found that time when I was doing when I do fasting, that time when you're actually not eating, and you're in a fasted state, and the, your brain is running on ketones you pick up a book and you just absorbing all this knowledge and then put it down, eat. And, and you, if you pick up a book after you've eaten, I can tell you what, if you've, if you've ever done intermittent fasting yeah, and you pick up a book after you've eaten, there's no chance you're reading that book.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's just your whole physiology changes because your body is now switching to a point where it's got to deal with actually processing food. So any kind of energy that it uses is going to be for processing food. Yeah. And, and your brain just switches off. It's like, see so ya. Yeah,
1: you know i'm having a rest <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's the problem, problem that i had i'd be like oh no oh my fasting's finished now i'll eat food oh, i'll do some studying oh, i really can't be bothered to do it and yeah. I, think, I think i was like oh, actually what if i did it before i ate food and then i realized actually i'm learning really quickly so that was another tool that helped as well was fasting
0: so how did you actually come across the fasting and nutrition because you know my reason behind it is I had a problem with eczema It started when I was 18, yeah. and it took me a long, long time to actually figure out. I to sort out my nutrition to actually solve uh, skin problems that I had. Um, I then started researching fasting because a friend told me about for, it for training to actually become a lot leaner, a lot more defined in my kind of physical shape because I wanted to make an improvement in that. But as as you said, is that once once I asked how it was, I just started looking for ways of actually answering that question. Yeah, and it's it comes from the, the the whole point of actually asking a question of what is the result that you want, and then taking the steps towards that. Once I actually really focused on my nutrition, and then I started playing around. Okay, what about fasting? And as I was testing, I found that with the fasting is if I went for like a full day, although I felt hungry. I didn't actually feel like I had less energy. Sometimes I actually felt like I had more energy by the end of the day than what I had when I was uh, when I was eating. Even though I felt hungry, I, would, I, I felt like I had more available energy to deal with things. How did you find that it actually benefited you? What made you actually go look at fasting as a method?
1: So it's, it's actually a really interesting question because I was I took an IQ test in the army um, and I, th- I think I just scraped over a hundred. So I was really curious to say, you know, I literally typed into Google, how to you get more intelligent? And I was looking at all these different ways. I was looking at nootropics. I was looking at brain diets. I was having a look at like omega free overloading, mm. brain health. And then I saw this one article about fasting, and it had all these different medical references. And it, was, it had like one paragraph that was like, shown to show significant results in positive you know, brain function. So I clicked on it, read through the medical reference, and I was like, mm, okay, it sounds quite good. Went online and was like, okay, fasting diets, and I found all these different, you know, the warrior diets, the you know, mm. twenty four, sixteen, eight. And I started off with sixteen eight first, gave it a few try. I hated it. First three days was horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, when you start out, it's really, really quite hard because you're so programmed to eat. Yeah, I had I had headaches. I didn't realise what I could and couldn't drink. So some some days I was actually doing it wrong. You know, I was, I was putting stuff in my coffee and I was doing it wrong. But then when I got into the, the real groove of it, that's when the results started coming in. And I recently took an IQ test last year, I took it, and actually managed to score 40 more points on my previous score. Because I mean, my, my last one was 101. Um, and I think I went up to 141. Um a massive jump. Yeah, but that, it, it was like a five-year period. And I I just, I just wanted to see, because my mindset completely changed from that day to this day. So back then I was just like, a guy going to the gym in the army, you know, out with his mates drinking all the time to how do I improve myself? I'm now in civilian street. How do I become a security professional? How do I start to understand the, the concepts of what I'm learning? How do I understand security as a whole? How do I understand how to talk to people about it? And then I went on this massive spiral about, you know, how to become more intelligent, it's quite interesting really. You were talking about
0: looking to find out how to become more intelligent because obviously you did your your IQ test last year and there was a big jump. So just carry on with that story.
1: Yeah, so I was just looking at ways of how to change the lifestyle. So that would be exercise. That's one really good factor. Intermittent fasting really helped. Diet was a really big one. So recently I've become vegetarian. That was prior to the tests that I did. But I find that's helped me with energy levels a bit more. I also looked into nootropics now. If anyone's looked into nootropics before, it's it's a very smoke and mirror kind of subject. It's yeah, I've serious. looked at it. And it's like a lot of it's like, you know, witchcraft and wizardry and you don't yeah. know what's going on. The thing that I've really hanged with is one of my friends recommended Lion's mane to me. And now mm. lion's mane is just a mushroom, but it's been it's been shown to have benefits on uh, being able to process information and have positive health benefits with your brain. Now I've been doing it now for about lines, for about three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. And I don't have as much brain fog as I did before. Now the brain fog that I do have only comes on when I eat, when I'm in a fasted state, my thinking is very clear. It's very precise. I actually took my exam fasted. And I think if I didn't take that exam in a fasted state, I would have struggled massively.
0: Yeah, that's quite interesting because one of the areas I've done quite a lot of research into with regards to improving my own cognitive ability and actually make changes and improvements is nutrition and the effects of nutrition on brain health and also brain fog. Because the other interesting fact that I, I hadn't realized is that basically half of the human population will suffer from brain fog. Uh, and that apparently, women tend to really suffer it quite quite badly because of the hormonal changes, especially when they're pregnant. Because the kind of hormonal changes and physical effects on the, on the body, it causes quite a lot of cognitive impact because of the changes that happen. Just one of those things, uh, and apparently, when a woman goes through menopause, they do suffer a lot more with uh, with brain fog and because of the hormonal changes. But the other thing that I did some research on is because I looked into the vagus nerve. Because the vagus nerve, uh, basically, it it starts on the brain and then it connects into your heart, your lungs, your organs, and also your your intestines, and it's got more receptors in the intestines than put cells in the brain. Now, the the purpose of the vagus nerve is to actually receive sensory information from the body and then send it up to the brain. That's what it does for 80 to 90% of its function. It does have some opposite signals that it sends to the body, but the majority of the signaling comes from the rest of the body to the brain. Now, where it gets really interesting is that your nutrition, the quality of the food that you have, impacts the gut health. And that has a direct impact because those hormonal signals and those micronutrients and all those things can actually feed up into the brain. A really easy example is, is when you go on a bender, when you start drinking alcohol. You drink a bunch of alcohol, you wake up, you're, you've got a massive hangover, you're, you're not functioning properly, you're tired, your heart rate is all over the place. It ties into various other things. But one of the things that because the liver has to go through multiple stages of actually processing the alcohol, it uses a, a massive amount of energy to be able to process alcohol. So all, all other normal processing that it does for cholesterol repurposing and actually providing energy to the rest of the body, goes on hold because it has to process the alcohol and now the other thing that it does is the alcohol actually affects your microbial health in your gut which is part of the reason why you feel really terrible the day after because you've got the dehydration the body's used up a lot of the glucose to be able to process the alcohol and that's one of the things that the brain needs is is glucose unless you're doing fasting or something like that where the, the, the body tends to use ketones but now what you've done is you've negatively impacted your physical system, which processes food and actually supports the brain. Yeah, And that, that information all flows up to, to the brain, which is why you feel so foggy and everything else and you feel like death the day after and you, it takes you a while to get back to normal. That's a, a really simple example. Other things which I found out which causes a massive impact on brain fog is obviously hydration because your body needs all of the fluids to be able to function normally, and the brain needs uh, needs that as well. Oxygenation has a big impact on it. Yeah. And stress. Stress has a huge impact on how you function and how you think as well, because there, there's a number of reasons. But it ties again to the vagus nerve, because your stress triggers your amygdala. And that changes your heart rate, your breathing rate and and where you breathe and how you breathe. And that literally changes how your brain processes information because now you're not using the front part of your brain for analytical processing, you're using fear-based processing. So you're using a different part of the brain to do processing and you tend to be in a survival mode which means that your thought patterns are completely different and, and completely affected. So it's a, it's a hugely interesting uh, area. So, um, yeah, the, it ties in a lot with what you've just said with regards to nutrition and also you know, exercise, because you know, that does have a, a huge impact on your ability to
1: think clearly and uh, analytically. Yeah, and to be fair, gut health was something that was mentioned in quite a lot of the articles. It was you know, there's quite a, a, a uniform set standard of what you should and shouldn't do. And one of them was diet and it was all about your your gut health. Because um, as you mentioned, something like alcohol is gonna have a very negative impact on your ability to process information. Mm-hmm. Um so um like you said, if you have too much um too much alcohol, it disturbs that balance in your stomach and you wanna you know, wanna be sick. And then for a while, you know, yeah, you feel like crud, you know, you've written off a day, but it, you, your stomach really does get in tune with what you eat. Whenever I binge eat on food and I, well, that's what I've done most of the time in lockdown, I've been binge eating on food. I just want to sleep. I feel, I feel I feel good at all. I just want to sleep. I don't have the ability to study, but I've, you know, I had some good food and I had some cake, I had some pizza. Uh, <laughs> but I think when you, when you want to flip that switch and you want to go back to studying towards something, you need to, you know, turn it down a little bit, and then focus on what you focus on what you're eating. Because at the end of the day, it's your brain that's doing the work, and it's your brain that's doing the testing. You know, it's not you going to that centre; it's, it's this guy up here. And if he's not in tune, then you're probably going to struggle on that test. Have you tested meditation at all to see how that changes things for you? I did do a bit of meditation, but I think it's one of these things that it, it didn't work for me, but it has worked for other people. So it's certainly one of these things that you can try. One of the things that I did find works for me is just exercise mm. is not even if it's just not even a routine, even if it's just a quick 45 minute, 30 minute exercise routine, just because I think that that brings that stress level down, mm. you know, it gives you that endorphins. It gives you that energy boost. Uh, it's a weird feeling when you go to the gym, even if you're really tired, you know, you go to the gym, you do a workup you come out, you feel better. Yeah. You feel like you've got more energy. I know that sounds really weird, but you know, on the flip side, you know, you go in really tired and you come out with more energy and, it, you know, that doesn't make sense, but it it works. It happens. You feel a lot clearer and you have a better way of thinking. So I think for me, meditation for me didn't work personally, but I think that's just my personality is I'm, I'm quite a fidgety person. I don't like to be in the same place at one time. I don't like to walk around. So I think pick what works for you. I know loads of people that meditate and they abide by it. They do it a lot. My biggest challenge has been
0: trying to find a way of actually calming my brain down mm. because that's the big challenge. And I think what a lot of people tend to forget is that the brain's job is to process. Yeah. information. Uh, anybody that says they sit in meditation and they calm a zen and they don't think about anything else is either super, super good with their meditation and their discipline yeah. because there's research which they found that if you – if you meditate in a specific way, you can actually strengthen the cortical function for focus, but it's you have to be really specific in how you actually meditate and do it. And there's the way that you can actually breathe to actually support that because you've got to use something called block breathing, where you breathe in for, say, four seconds, pause for four seconds, and then exhale for four seconds, and then have a pause for four seconds, and then process that. And that whole... A challenge of actually focusing on the the four-second pause and the breath and four-second pause and exhale actually is a way of actually getting your brain to focus on the process of breathing, which then switches you into your brain waves to actually calm it down your, your thoughts and force it to actually focus on the breathing. And because you're focusing on your physical awareness of the breath process, it actually does start calming the brain down. Now, there's something else which I came across a really, really uh, random article. I was doing some research on breathwork, specifically on exhalation, because the whole thing with the exhalation is that it actually calms down your stress response really, really quickly. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I was trying to figure out why was it that it was so effective in calming your stress response. As an example, if you think about somebody who's stressed, what's the first thing that they do? They breathe in. Yeah. But they breathe in. And they sigh, but how is the sigh normally? Yeah, definitely. yeah. It's an exhalation, and it's a long exhalation. And I didn't think it tied the two together. So if you really wanted to get out of a stress condition really quickly, apart from the fact that you do the count ten, because it focuses your brain on something else, it gets it out of its whole stress, fear, kind of emotional response thing, and then you deactivate the prefrontal cortex. But the other thing is that when you do a slow exhalation, it's a way of actually reducing your heart rate really easily without having to go into a full meditative state. So if you had to do that for five breaths, just breathe in, and then just do a slow exhalation like you're doing a sigh, and that whole sigh actually triggers the vagus nerve and actually calms the heart rate down. And that ties into the whole thing where it connects between your gut and actually your brain because if you're breathing into your belly, you're actually signalling to the nerves in your in your stomach, which signals up to your brain, and then when you breathe out slowly, it's actually forcing the body to relax. That's sigh
1: is a way of actually relaxing the body. So yeah, you picked it up really quickly there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because um, I was on a like a like a first aid kind of course, and one of the things that they focus on what is arming people down in the vicinity. It's like securing the area, make sure the area is safe, make sure anyone that's in distress is moved away from danger and moved away from it. And one of the things I actually say to people is try to slow people's breathing down, is when you're talking to somebody that's in distress, you know, reassure them and tell them to calm their breathing down. And one of the breathing exercises is actually the the four-second exercise Mm -hmm. is um, being able to, you know, take a deep breath in and deep breath out. And then that get use that to relax someone. Now, if we translate that to security, it's a really useful skill with being able to have that in your back pocket. So when all these alarm bells on your SIM talks start going off, that there's been a breach, a yeah. hacker in, and it's all panic stations. The worst thing that you can do is let your tensions rise because then you lose your clarity, you lose your way of thinking, and you're going to get lost. So that all that studying that you've done to become the security professional is going to go out the window because you're not going to be able to think straight. So I think just being able to like you know. We say, okay, there is a situation here. Take some deep breaths and slow it down. Think about your next steps. So I think having the ability to control your emotions and your stress levels, but anyway, anyway, necessary and breathing is a really good one. That's going to go a long way in terms of becoming a good security professional and responding to instance. And that's a skill that instant responders have is that ability to, you know, slow their, slow their breathing down slow their, you know, slow, any, you know fast-paced thinking no stress just straightforward thinking how we're going to resolve this and the only way you can have that straightforward thinking is by managing your stress that's it time
0: did you use any
1: of that when you were in the military or when you were serving so I think a lot of that in the army came naturally so you'd be like oh it's another you know another you know long day or you know but then you it starts to become like a coping mechanism so after a while they'll be like oh you know you get a, a, task to do something that is just you really don't want to do and instantly you sigh and mm. you instantly cope with it but yeah. i think mean, you, you build that kind of natural coping mechanism and i think that's why we naturally sigh is because it's a natural coping mechanism for that stress in that given time but i think the army actually made me made me quite resilient to a lot of high pressure and high stress environments i think cuz you you're constantly in one in most of the time in the army so you get that mental you get that mental resilience these kind of situations now that's not going to be the same for everyone yeah. so for me in a stressful situation i might be a little bit more relaxed than maybe somebody that's not been in the army mm. so for me i would have to be like okay i'll turn to them and say hey do you know just calm yourself down go get yourself some water i'll deal with this for now and come back when you've calmed down so i think that's something again it's not you don't have that nature built into you. You nurtured that through certain situations. And that's yeah. why I think if you're in security for a long period of time, you, you build that mindset that it's going to happen. But when it does happen, you learn to deal with it. I
0: think the other thing that happens is when you do extensive amounts of training, because you've built that capability into almost your processes and everything that you do. And because everything, especially in security, is becoming so process-driven to be able to cope with the amount of work that needs to be done, it allows you that capability to fall back onto your processing and your methods yeah. to actually get through the, all the information and you know allow your brain to run through the process and the automation and using spare capacity to then deal with things in a, in a slightly bit more creative way. Yeah. And because you've you've kind of put yourself into a really rigid, pressurized environment to actually learn, study, develop the skill set, when it actually gets to a point where you're actually utilizing it, it comes down to almost a, a muscle memory kind of situation where you then you develop that capability to be able to do it. And, yeah, and it just it, means you can deal with it a lot easier.
1: It's exactly that. And so if I looked at myself if, – if I – didn't have that ability to cope in high-stress environments and being able to manage situations in a very calm and collective manner, I think I wouldn't be able to perform some of the tasks I do today. So let's say, for instance, there's a phishing attack, and it's not just one person's got this email. 60, 50 people got this email. It's quite a large campaign. Now, there's multiple things that you need to do. You need to obviously find out the source of this email, block the source of that email, and inform the other users about what's happened and then the back end of that, there might be, oh, these users have clicked. You now need to manage with them. So all of a sudden, this very little, you know, this this phishing attack has turned into quite a big task for the analyst. Mm. That's going to cause a lot of stress unless they know how to manage that because it's quite a lot of work to do in a very short space, space of time. I know a lot of people are going to be watching this and thinking, automate it, automate it, you know, get Python, you know, automate it. But sometimes, sometimes more mature security programs don't have that, automation in place and it's quite a manual task. It's going to get quite stressful. And then if you say that somebody's clicked on the email and there's a malware attack, that's just added to that stress. And if you can't cope with that, you're going to explode. So I think, as you said, having that process in place, that almost like a playbook when it happens, you can say, I'm getting too stressed here. I'm just going to go get this playbook. I'm going to understand what I need to do. And even though you've trained for it and you know what you need to do, in that moment of time you might have just lost your way of thinking and so you have that process in place to help you um but i think that's the most important skill for a security analyst in any high-dress environment is manage yourself yeah i think you made a really valid point in that regard
0: the one last thing that you mentioned when we, we were talking is music you mentioned something about the white noise can you just Tell us a bit more about that, because I found that really interesting. I saw a research article recently where they found that students who actually had a music curriculum as part of their training and were actively developing a a music skill were. Better at maths and science when we're learning long term because obviously they were focused on developing not just playing the music but then also learning the notes and learning, you know, how to compose music and all of the the structure of the the music. So it requires a lot more focus and discipline and cognitive demand, not just learning the skill of the music but also learning how to
1: read music. What have you found with music? What works for you? So this is a really strange one because I started using white noise. I'd go on YouTube and I would type in studying white noise. And it'd be a very low level white noise. Uh, it'd be a 10 hour video, very low level. Um, I'd have my earbuds in. But for me, as soon as that white noise was on, it was just, I was there. I was in the moment. I could, what I was reading, I was just reading that. I wasn't seeing anything else. And as soon as that stopped, I was back in the room. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. It very, It's a very strange phenomenon. Also, I found very low level, levels of classical music as well helped. Um, I hate classical music. <laughs> and I, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't catch me listen to it normally, but in that moment when you're trying to study, it helps, and it's it's weird. Even if you don't like it, I would say just try it and, and see what you think, but white noise at a very low level really helped me read books. It's really strange to say how the experience went. It's like you press the play button, you're in the book, you, you pause it, you're back in the room. It's
0: very strange. That sounds quite interesting because it almost touches on something called the state of flow. I'm uh, not sure if you heard of the term or know about it. Most people probably know it as being in the zone. When all of your you know, awareness basically switches off and you become hyper-focused on, on, on a task. And what it sounds like is that by switching on the white noise, you're actually shutting off your critical processing, the judgmental part of the brain, which does that kind of uh, pre-processing of of initial assessment. And you just go into a stage of actually processing information or just reading and and going through the information, knowledge processing. So it almost sounds like that's a trigger of flow. It's characteristics of flow. You become really focused on the task. Everything else switches off. Your awareness switches off. And you become really unaware of time and you get into just a really fluid state of processing information. And the, the other thing I think which helps or which they say is a characteristic of actually triggering a flow state is you have a certain amount of kind of stressor and where you have to work at it, where you, you, you've got a slight amount of, say, cognitive demand, where you have to push yourself to really focus on what you do. I think what happens with the white noise is that it almost pushes you into that slightly stressed situation where everything else gets switched off and you've got, really got to focus on, on your task. And it just means that you don't have to do all of this additional processing of is it good enough, is this valid or anything. You're just basically switching on into the, the processing side of things.
1: Yeah, it, it's really weird, like the whole phenomenon of it. Because uh, I, I looked it on uh, Google. And I thought, oh, that can't be real, surely. Who would listen to white noise? It's terrible. And then I actually found there's YouTube channels dedicated to white noise purely for the purpose of concentration. So I tried it and I was like, this is actually really peaceful. It was really strange. I'll just sit on the train and I'll be reading my book with white noise in and it's peaceful. It was really weird. It's
0: cool. Yeah, i would definitely drop the links and what we'll do is we'll share it on the uh, on the podcast notes and then we can we can build out a bunch of things just as a Kind of attachment or PDF or something for specifically, you know, for people who, you know, have any kind of learning challenges or dyslexia or anything else, any kind of tips that you can build out. What we'll do is we'll allow it as a kind of a shareable PDF or something for people that they can use. And anybody else that just wants to you know, test all of the tips and the, the points that we discussed, because a lot of the things that you talk about are stuff that I looked into, nootropics. In Obviously, we've spoken about nutrition, but also breathing and uh, all of the other aspects which I've also looked into to try and get improvements in, in what I do because I don't classify myself as a very good exam taker. I have to spend a lot of time in learning. I have to really work hard on my knowledge acquisition to be able to get the results that I want. I'm not a really fast uh, person when it comes to exam taking. I have to do quite a lot of work at it. So uh, it's just one of the things that I've had to go through to try and get that extra edge
1: yeah and that i've been in exactly the same boat is not just finding the exam confidence but knowing the fact that you have that knowledge inside your head because when you take an exam again you're trying to remember the what you've learned to answer what's on the paper so if you haven't got that confidence my biggest tip would be validate what you've learned take some practice exams that'll help you validate if you've got that knowledge in your head but also use that as feedback if you don't do well on the practice exams look at where you failed Go back to the drawing board and, you know, work on your craft. Come back to the practice exams. And eventually, you need to take that leap of faith and just throw that date, that exam date in your calendar. Yeah. Don't, give, don't give yourself any excuses. Just throw it in the calendar. You've got that deadline. And then all of a sudden, you've got a high-pressure environment. You're now working towards that deadline. And then instantly, I can promise anyone who's watching this, if you book your exam for two, three weeks' time, watch your mentality change overnight. Yeah. you wake up thinking oh, I've, I've got to do this now I've, it's set in stone i've got a deadline you wake up and your head would be in a book straight away it, your mentality yeah. changes
0: yeah i did situation late last year because uh, to refresh my incident handling or science exam and i decided i, I was going to do the exam and you know obviously my certification was going to expire so i literally just had to it's like okay everything else switched off it was like i'm doing the labs I'm reading the books, I'm reviewing the information, I'm refreshing it, everything else, and I'm you know, I'm working at it. Nothing else matters. All that it is is just, you know, I've just got to work through it. Yeah. And it actually gets to a point where it's just like I, I'm refreshing all the information, which I actually enjoyed learning this stuff again because i actually – retest and reaffirm some of the knowledge but it was a whole process i actually got to a point was like yeah i remember this i can do this you know i can test this and also the other good thing is that it actually gives you a better chance of actually enhancing some of the skills that you had before because your underlying understanding is a lot deeper because you're actually building on top of other knowledge which is very very useful because you know knowledge acquisition takes time you don't immediately absorb all the information you've got to build it up over stages it's like an onion. You've basically got to have layers and layers of knowledge that you add on to the top of it to actually get to the point where you're the uh, smelly item that makes everybody cry. That's me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's that smelly item there. <laughs> uh, Jay, it was brilliant
0: having you on as a guest, and I look forward to uh, speaking with you again. Have a good night. And
1: you. Pleasure to be on. Cheers, mate.
0: When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains
1: a shout out on the podcast.